What exactly makes a goal effective and how can we avoid common pitfalls in the goal setting process? Well, I sat down with renowned goal setting expert, Caroline Miller, and she taught us practical strategies for achieving our toughest goals and cultivating the determination to see them through. Welcome to the Sonia Looney Show. This is a podcast about high performance and well-being, and I'm your host, Sonia. And if you're new around here, I am a world and multi-time national champion in mountain biking, and I still race professionally. I'm a health and mental performance coach, a writer, a mom of two little kids, and I own my own business. And if you're not new around here, welcome. I'm so glad that you're back, and I'm so grateful that you are a part of this awesome community and that we get to learn and grow together. But at the end of the day, the research is very clear that authentic self-esteem is built only, only through going out of your comfort zone and doing hard things. And at the end of the day, most people don't know this, but you scan your day for what you did that was hard, not easy, hard. And you're doing this, not even knowing you're doing it. And how do you build authentic self-esteem? You experience frustration and sadness and depression or whatever, but you rally because you know you're on your way. I am so excited about today's podcast. I sat down with Caroline Miller, who was in the very first year of the MAP program, the Master in Applied Positive Psychology at the University of Pennsylvania that I am currently enrolled in. And Caroline is a wealth of knowledge. If you've been a listener of the show, you know that I am very passionate about goal setting. And it was such a treat to get to sit down with an expert, someone who has dedicated her life and wrote the very first evidence-based book in goal setting. If you are an athlete, you are no stranger to goals. And I'm pretty excited because I've set some new goals this year as an athlete. Something I uncovered about myself over the years is that I've had a difficult time in my excitement around choosing domestic races because I've gotten to race all over the world before the pandemic and before I had kids. I could pick any race I wanted to, which is such a luxury and such a privilege, and go have these amazing adventures. And while there are adventures to be had in North America, it's just different. So I've been asking myself, what is it that I want out of racing? What is it that I need now? Because I've, I honestly don't need any more results to my name. Although I am highly competitive and I love to race, another race win doesn't mean as much as it used to. So I've asked myself, why do I race? Why am I still racing? I've been racing for 20 years. What is it about racing that I love? And of course, I love pursuing excellence. I love getting the best out of myself. I love challenging my limits. But what are the conditions in which I love to do that? If you've listened to performance psychologist Michael Gervais, he talks about mastery of self and mastery of craft. And he's passionate about mastering yourself through craft. So mountain biking is a craft. Your work is a craft. How can you master yourself through craft? Curiosity, exploration, community, and pushing my limits are the reasons that I love racing. I love going fast, but it's not just about going fast. It's about other things as well. It's about the character underneath all of that. Sure, you can have mental skills, but what is underneath that? It is your character. And that was an epiphany moment I had the other day whenever I was out for a run, is that what is it about these adventure, exploration, ultra endurance events that I love so much. And it is because it's not only a test of fitness, it's a test of character. So I've signed up for some more ultra trail running events this year. I'll be doing some mountain bike stage racing later in the summer, but I am a little bit nervous about some of these trail running events that I've signed up for. 
I'm doing uh, a warm up uh, 25k this weekend to get some more racing experience because you can have all the best fitness in the world. You can know how to race, especially on the mountain bike in my case, but there is nothing like race experience. So I'm trying to get a little bit more of that under my belt before I tackle some of these bigger trail running events, but I'll be doing the run Ridge run this weekend more as a, a training race. And then I'll be doing the Diaz Vista 50 K, which is a premier 50 K race. It's one of the oldest ultras in Canada in April and then this is going to be kind of a scary thing that I'm excited about. I'll be signing up for the Broken Arrow Sky Running uh, race in June. And sky running is intimidating as heck to me. You are exposed. There's lots of stuff up high and I have a lot to learn about it. <laughs> so I'll be excited about that. So why am I talking about trail running? Well, I have a new sponsor this year that I'm very excited about. And I discovered them through their recovery drink. Let me tell you, I've been an endurance athlete for 20 years and everybody talks about the importance of getting your recovery drink after a hard workout or a race, but I could never drink it. I never liked the texture. I never liked the taste. I used to try to plug my nose and drink them because I thought, well, you need this. And I just gave up on recovery drinks altogether until I found Tailwind Nutrition. So that is my new nutrition sponsor this year, but I discovered them many years ago and I was just drinking their um, vanilla and their chocolate recovery drink. It's a plant-based recovery drink, which is hard to find sometimes and it tastes good and it doesn't have a weird texture. So I thought, well, heck, I love this product. So I am going to pursue them as a sponsor. And lo and behold, they are my nutrition partner for this year. They've been incredibly supportive. I feel like I matter in this sponsorship relationship, which is something that is so crucial, where, for, especially for where I'm at in my career right now. I get to help them introduce people to these incredible products that they have. And their endurance fuel is something that I will be using in my races to fuel me forward. I just tried their Mandarin for the first time and it tastes like a Tic Tac. So if you are interested in sports nutrition, you can ask me any question you like. I have a sports nutrition handbook on my moxieandgrit.com website. So if you are grossed out by recovery drinks, or maybe the one you have just isn't doing it for you anymore, Get their recovery mixes. Check out the salted caramel and the vanilla. Those are my two favorite flavors. They taste great. You can get a sampler so you don't have to commit to an entire bag, which is kind of a bummer whenever you're sampling a recovery drink for the first time. And if you decide you don't like it, you've committed to this whole bag. But I know that you're going to like it. I know that you're going to see great results with it. It really does help me a lot. And especially I'm a busy mom. I come in from my ride. Sometimes I don't have time to eat. Sometimes I am uh, don't even have time to shower. I just change, wipe the dirt off myself and get on with it. So having a recovery drink like the Tailwind Recovery Mix has been such a game changer for me. So head on over to tailwindnutrition.com and check it out. Okay, so back to the topic of this podcast, the science of goal setting and good grit with Caroline Miller. Gosh, I am so excited for you to listen to this because it is going to change the way that you view goal setting. You've probably heard the term grit. You might have even seen Angela Duckworth's book on grit. So what is grit? Well, grit is that indomitable spirit that propels us forward in the face of adversity. It is passion and perseverance for long-term goals. Caroline's insight leads into different types of grit, from good grit that fosters personal growth to bad grit that leads to burnout. And I think all of us have been prone to bad grit in our lives at some point. 
Caroline offers a fresh perspective on resilience and determination. She draws from research and theories in positive psychology, like Locke and Latham's goal-setting theory, which I found very interesting whenever I studied it last semester, and Angela Duckworth's work on grit. As we navigate through the complexities of goal-setting, we uncover the importance of self-regulation and intrinsic motivation. Together, we examine how these factors influence our ability to persevere in the pursuit of our goals, especially in the realm of sports and fitness. As a trailblazer in the field of positive psychology, Caroline stands out as one of the world's foremost authorities on the science of successful goal setting and the cultivation of good grit to conquer challenging endeavors. Through her best-selling books, executive coaching, educational courses, motivational speaking engagements, and more, she has empowered countless individuals to clarify their goals and develop the resilience needed to achieve them. Caroline has written several books on topics like goal setting, grit, and overcoming bulimia, which might be interesting to a lot of cyclists out there who have had disordered patterns of eating and full-blown eating disorders. Her books include Creating Your Best Life, Getting Grit, and her autobiography, My Name is Caroline. And Caroline is working on a new book. It is a revolutionary new book on goal setting that I can't wait to read. Today, you will walk away with learning the difference between learning goals and performance goals. You'll learn about good grit and bad grit. You'll learn about self-regulation and intrinsic motivation and finding a balance between challenging goals and short-term satisfaction. We also talk about developing grit in younger generations, which is a key concern that I hear all of the time whenever I talk to people, especially when I tell them that I'm pursuing my master's in applied positive psychology. We talk about the importance of lived experience in applying positive psychology concepts, the application part of being a positive psychology practitioner. So friends, I hope you enjoyed this episode. Please share the show with your friends or post it to social media and tag Caroline and myself as we would love to hear what you got out of this episode. So let's dive right in with Caroline Miller. Caroline, I'm so excited uh, to talk to you on the podcast. Oh, that makes two of us. Hello. So tell us about yourself before we dive in. Um, gosh, uh, <laughs> I'm a mom. I have, uh, you're in the program that I got a graduate degree from in 2006, the Master's of Applied Positive Psychology. I've written a number of books and the one, the standouts, the ones I'm most known for is My Name is Caroline, the first book by anybody who overcame bulimia that came out over 30 years ago. First autobiography, I should say. My capstone project, um, Creating Your Best Life, came out several times now in many languages. First evidence-based goal-setting book ever published for the mass market, shocker. How did that happen? And then getting grit, which is about how to cultivate grit, not just that it's important. So I also do speeches and I coach CEOs all over the world. So I'm busy and I'm having fun. Yeah, you are a goal setting expert. So I wanted to jump in and ask you, what are the biggest mistakes that people make around goals? Not setting the right goals or not setting any goals at all. I think a lot of people don't want to disappoint themselves. Gary Latham, the co-founder of Goal Setting Theory, told me when I was writing Creating Your Best Life, many years ago and subsequently the same thing, that people don't want to feel bad about themselves. So, you know, at the end of their lives or as they get older, it's this look in the rear view mirror, coulda, woulda, shoulda, you know, hurts more if you've set goals and failed to even attempt them. So that's one of the biggest mistakes. Another is quitting, just quitting. Uh, and you and you and I both know about quitting. So the minute you hit a speed bump, quitting. And then not dividing goals into performance goals or learning goals. And I think that is massive. If you don't know the science of goal setting, you can make a mistake from the get-go, but have all the right intentions. 
Can you talk more about the learning goals versus performance goals? Because I know that people's ears just pricked up when they heard that. Okay, so this is Locke and Latham's goal setting theory, one of the most validated scientific management theories ever developed in the field of motivation and and science. So in 1990, uh, after studying... (laughs) people who cut trees down, of all things, they discovered that there are really two kinds of goals. And if you get them wrong, you get into a situation I'll call goals gone wild, where people can die, reputations are lost, companies never come back from the break. So here are the two kinds of goals. Performance goals are things you've done before, like a pilot with a checklist, like a surgeon in an operating theater checking off, this has to be in place, this has to be in place. Those are things you've done before. And if you follow a checklist, you can then ask yourself to achieve a certain outcome by a certain date. And only in that situation can you expect a certain kind of performance. Now, the best performance in those situations is challenging and specific, not low goals and not no goals. So That's a performance goal. It has to be something you've done before. A learning goal is something either you've never done before or the world has never done before. I'm coaching the CEO of a space agency company, and some of what she's doing has never been done by anyone in the world. So she's in what's called a do-your-best condition. She's learning as fast as she can from other people who've done different elements of the you know, the space industry world. But for her, it's a learning goal. So you flatten your learning curve as quickly as possible. You're in a job, someone gives you a goal, you've never accomplished it before, you don't have the skills, you can't just sit there and bulldoze your way through it. You have to find a mentor, you have to do some research. And that is a learning goal condition that's called do your best. Only after you have learned how to do that can you set specific outcome goals that are challenging and specific to get yourself an outcome. Mixing those things up has led to the biggest business disasters. The most recent one that everyone heard about is the Titan submersible. You know, no one had ever taken a submersible down to the Titanic that had was made with some kind of weird um, metal that had never been pressure tested at that level. But he wanted to make a certain amount of money. He wanted to be an astronaut of the deep. I'm talking about Stockton Rush. And so in his attempt to do something that had never been done before, but he set himself a certain outcome that was financially um, derived and by a certain date without going through the checklist approach, I have to do this right, I have to do this right, I have to do this right. He blew up. He, unfortunately, it blew up in every possible way, himself, his passengers. But that's just one example. Don't make the mistake of thinking any goal you set is something you can immediately say, I want this outcome by that date. That's one of the biggest mistakes people make. Yeah, differentiating between those two is is really impactful. And it's funny, um, I'm still learning language for all of these things. And I did a TED Talk in 2015. I was the first woman to ever finish this race in Nepal, the highest mountain bike race in the world. And um, in my TED Talk, I was I actually had thought I was going to fail. And I said, success is doing your best. And I've, I would I would define success differently yeah. now, but that was a learning goal. That was a way to do exactly what you just said. And that was yeah. something I had never done before. So it's really interesting to see that connection. Yeah. So that was a do your best condition. Instead of saying, I have to get there in a certain amount of time, certain number of hours, you said success is attempting this. That is a learning goal. You could set a time goal now because you've done it. So let me ask you something. Whenever we say success or set a do your best goal, what about people who have perfectionistic concerns and strivings where best means best? It's not best means perfect. 
Well, you know, I think that's a recipe for disaster. You have to compete against yourself, not in not the rest of the world. Perfectionists are often trying to get everything right so that other people will admire them, or it's an extrinsical something that is not a passion project. So people who are perfectionists are often exhibiting something called obsessive passion. That's Bob Valoran's work. It's obsessive passion and harmonious passion. And when you have that situation in your life with various you know, goals that you're pursuing, you end up not enjoying the journey and not enjoying the outcome. And so I think we all know that that's something you need. And that's what nearly killed me with my eating disorder. I was a perfectionist and wanted to have a certain body as a competitive swimmer and, you know, to get into the right college, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, that perfectionist tendency led me to near death. And now I use that competitive mindset to help other people be their best instead of turning it inwards and being very self-focused. So how can somebody decide what is their best, not other oriented, but what is their best whenever they are having a learning goal? That's a great question. Let me just think about that for a second. Their very best when they have a learning goal, again, it's a do your best condition. I think it should be something that is somewhat realistic and yet still Lock and Latham say challenging, a little bit outside your fingertips. If you stretch your arm out, That's really the goal, a little bit past your fingertips. Your reach should exceed your grasp. And so for all different goals, it's going to be a little bit different. But you also don't want to be miserable. That's what I call stupid grit, when you're pursuing something to the detriment of yourself or others. Yeah, I want to get into grit. We talk. You talk about good grit and bad grit in your book. Can you tell us about those? Sure. So uh, I met Angela Duckworth in 2005 when she was just starting to do this research on grit. And so when I wrote Creating Your Best Life, some of the findings were that happy people wake up to hard goals, not easy goals. And so I wanted to learn more about if, if hard goals are part of the secret of a flourishing life, how do you get this thing called grit? As I studied it and worked with people all over the world, what I realized is there was good grit and bad grit. So I divided it into different, you know, um, different buckets. So we all know examples of people, really bad people in the world who have passion for destroying things. And in the process of pursuing that goal, that stupid grit can put themselves and others at risk. In in mountaineering, it's called summit fever. You are determined to get to the top and you don't listen to other people telling you to turn around. Then there's selfie grit. You do hard things, but you make sure everybody admires you and you take all the oxygen out of the room. It's me, me, me. And that kind of uh, arrogance and lack of humility always turns people off. And then there's faux grit. And there's an epidemic of fake grit, faux grit. People who are, I'm sure you've seen this, in Ironman triathlons, they'll skip an entire loop of a marathon. They will take shortcuts in order to achieve a claim. So we have a lot of presidents of universities right now having to step down because they plagiarize. That's faux grit. They want everyone to think their PhD was hard-earned. And then there's good grit. And good grit is going outside of your comfort zone to pursue your own intrinsic goals, things that that light you up. But in the process of doing that, this is important, your behavior awes and inspires other people to ask themselves, what if I live like that? So you're not giving speeches. You're doing hard things that make the world better because it uplifts the community. There's so much there. Three types of bad grit. I think that a lot of people listening and even myself, I can relate with some of the times I've I've actually done bad grit 
like racing with a cast on my wrist, for example, I thought I was being tough. And I think that a lot of times people, people will misinterpret being tough with bad grit and it's not the same thing. That is such a great point. Your kind of grit is what I called in getting grit, Mount Olympus grit. You redefined what the body was able to do. And even though it was a learning goal for you, you held up a beacon or shown beacon to other people saying, look, if you train this way, and let's assume it's a harmonious passion for you, if you train this way, if you persist, if you have your pain cave that you're willing to go into for a little while, you can you can do more things than you think you're capable of. That's Mount Olympus grit. Katie, Katie Ledecky is my neighbor. I've watched her grow up. Um, and, you know, Katie Ledecky has redefined distance swimming for, for women. That's why there's a mile in the next Olympics. There never was before she made it look fun. And I know from watching her grow up, it's her goal, no one else's goal. That's Mount Olympus grit. And that's what you have. But there's a fine line if you're, you know, if there's a fine line between hurting yourself and pursuing something to the ultimate extreme that you can handle. Anyway, we could go on and on about that, but that's a big topic. I actually wanted to ask you about this. I emailed Bob Valorand asking him about obsessive passion and saying, are there interventions or activities people can do that already have obsessive passion to make that obsessive passion harmonious? And he said that they're actually, they don't know enough about it yet. Some people are trying to create implementation goals around this. So I wanted to ask what your opinion, what your thoughts are. Um, Sometimes an intervention needs to be had. It's like a jealous boyfriend versus a boyfriend who supports your goals and is there for you. And I think sometimes you need to draw someone's attention to the fact that they may not realize that they are hurting themselves or hurting other people. There is a narcissism and a self-absorption and an arrogance that you see in people like that. They assume they see everyone sees the world the way they do. So I think there's interventions implementation intentions. If then, if I do this, then I'll do that. But there has to be a desire. There has to be a desire to change. And I think if you look at the word of alcohol, the world of alcoholism and interventions, when you raise someone's bottom and show them the ways in which they're not just hurting themselves, they're hurting other people. That I think is a great model for the rest of us on how to intervene on someone who may not realize the damage they're doing. I want to go back to Fogret. And this is really people are doing this because they really are worried about what other people think. And they're trying to rise to the top, either because they need a certain accolade that they didn't earn, or they just so they care so much about what other people think. Um, doping yeah. in sport is another example of this. People are just Big cheating. One. So, yeah. you know, if somebody has has bad grit or has faux grit or knows somebody with faux grit, or even just on social media, some of the things that people post, they actually didn't do the thing that they posted. How can people disentangle from this faux grit and not be so concerned about what other people think? You know, that's, again, that's an individual decision that people make. When in Getting Grit, I wrote about, I opened the chapter on faux grit, selfie grit, et cetera, with a story of people doing, to me, the most sacrilegious thing you can do around the military is buying the Medal of Honor at a flea market, buying a Medal of Honor, a fake one on eBay and wearing it or putting it on your resume, the highest honor you can get for intrepidity and gallantry um, in the military, in the military. And if there are people who root out those fakers, if you plagiarize, that's another form of fogret, you will lose your job, you will lose your reputation. And so I think when you see people like that, you cannot give them oxygen. 
you cannot hold them up as exemplars. And too often, if they're not caught early enough with the doping, as you mentioned, Lance Armstrong is another example in my book, then they set an extreme example that can't be matched. So I think that rooting them out and exposing them when appropriate, but not giving them oxygen is probably one of the best best ways to deflate their self-important bubble. You also talk about authentic grit. You have an entire chapter on it in your book. Can you talk about authentic grit? Yeah, authentic grit is what I was saying a little bit earlier. As I thought about Angela's definition, passion and persistence in pursuit of long-term goals, I decided I wanted to add this piece about awe because I do think that authentic grit, good grit, is not just about us, you or me or another individual doing hard things. I believe that in the 21st century, a lot of the qualities that we've admired in the me, 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 the self-help world really have to be changed into a we, we, we approach. And I think that grit, good grit, authentic grit has the outcome. It's not the purpose, has the outcome of awing and inspiring other people. I think of Malala Yousafzai. I think about her being shot in the face by um in Pakistan by the terrorists, their names are escaping me right now, but, you know, being shot in the face just because she wanted to help girls and women learn to read and go to school. Those people awe and elevate us. They do make us wonder and and ask ourselves, am I living my best life? Am I doing the things that I'm meant to do? Do I have a legacy I'm even pursuing right now? So I added that awe and inspiration because I felt it was, it was, fitting the examples of the good grit that I saw in history and in the world around me. This also made me think a bit about Maslow's, you know, self-actualization. I don't want to say uh, it's a hierarchy of needs, but I think a lot of people misinterpret how the hierarchy actually operates, but self-actualization and then in his later work, transcendence and transcendence, meaning you get less about yourself and your work becomes more about others. And I actually um, interviewed a Team USA Olympic volleyball player yesterday who said that motherhood was something that helped her be more, she didn't use these words, but she said more transcendent. She was very self-focused in her competition. And after having a kid, she became other focused. How can I help other women and other people? So can can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. I mean, I think Scott Barry Kaufman's extension of Maslow's work has really been important because Maslow died way too young. He died on the, you know, on his pool deck at Stanford University. And so this whole idea that he had exemplars of transcendence is an important idea that really never got outside this pyramid that everybody talks about. But I think that when you transcend, this is about, you know, harmonious passion. When you're doing something for the right reason with passion and you're pursuing it, then you do become somebody who represents to the world the best of what you can be. And it is that other focus. Marty Seligman talks about this. Chris Peterson, who I was fortunate to have as a mentor when I first entered the the field of positive psychology, he also talked about other people matter as the, the way to define positive psychology. When you get to that point, the world is a joyful place. And that is where I got when I was overcoming my bulimia. And I remember just thinking, my God, I don't know anyone who's overcome it, really. The world didn't know people who'd overcome it. It was a death sentence. It was Karen Carpenter dying. And the rest of us wondering, gosh, who lives? And I remember someone saying to me, you can't keep what you don't give away, Caroline. You can't do it. And that's when I transcended myself. I really do believe in the mid-1980s, as I overcame bulimia, one day at a time, 
I learned transcendence because it wasn't about me getting better anymore. It was how many people could, could I turn around and pull with me. And I think that's an example of transcendence. Yeah, I think a lot about that journey, right? Like you can tell people a lot of these different things and even a lot of these things that we learn in in positive psychology, but without having the real life experience of that, whether it's Mm -hmm. traumatic or not, can these things just be learned in a book or do they have to be learned experientially? Oh, this is where having a math degree is so valuable. (laughs) It's because I think the theories are interesting in and of themselves, grit, motivation, self-efficacy, self-determination. I mean, I could go on and on and on. But when you're an applied practitioner of all these theories, then you breathe life and light into the theories. And and some of the best researchers are very interested in how you and me and others are applying the research in ways that show, gosh, I can do this in the pursuit of this goal or that goal, or this is what it means. So I think by itself, research is not useful until you know how to apply it. And I think real life lived experience is the only way I think, to inculcate the lessons. I know I had to overcome bulimia to learn what grit was. I did not know what it was. I didn't feel it until that moment. Thank you for talking about the MAP degree. I'm, I'm very excited about it. Um, something I wanted to ask you, actually, was that some some questions people send me sometimes are about concerns of grit in um, younger generations, that they're mm-hmm. not as gritty. I, I work with a lot of people who work with younger athletes. so. Are there different approaches from the grit research that you've seen for helping younger people have grit? Yeah, I mean, I, uh, yeah, this was a touchy area. I spent 10 years researching getting grit, and I knew that whatever I said was going to be attacked because you can't just have this be an N of one. Like the next generation has a lot of grit because I know a lot of people with grit, or they have no grit because that's what I read in a book somewhere. So I took a lot of time to really look at this research. And the fact is, The generation that my adult children were raised as part of and beyond that was raised with comfort animals and and taking away valedictorian status and class rank and the rest of it. One of my children's a teacher, and he is so appalled that in some of the schools he's taught in, you're not allowed to give kids a grade lower than A minus. Harvard and Yale just came out. The average grades in A minus. I was there at Harvard. Not everyone's doing A minus work. This is BS. And so I think we can blame this on the culture and the parents who raise these children, not on our children. And I think we have to start with the fact that the research is very, very clear that the world changed around that generation and subsequent generations. We changed playgrounds, for God's sake. Wood chips. Everybody bounces off wood chips. Slides are a foot high. I mean, it's crazy stuff. And this is all documented. So I did write about that in Getting Grit. We are now going back to, believe it or not, there's a dangerous playground movement that started in Europe that's spreading here. We have to expose our children to winning and losing, and we have to give them real feedback. Otherwise, you never learn what you're made of. You never learn about resilience, and you don't find out who has your back when you fall down. So that's some of the ways parents have to role model this behavior and stop protecting and bubble wrapping their children. And I'm I'm specifically focusing on getting grit, but, and it's funny because I, I just interviewed, he's one of the world's most famous cycling coaches. And he talked about how the base, the bases you have to cover are not the training. It's other things. It's like diet, sleep, those types of things. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. the current underneath everything was self-regulation. 
How do I not go too hard whenever somebody rides up next to me? How do I make sure that I eat the right things? How do I make sure that I go to bed in time? Mm -hmm. And in your Mm -hmm. book, you actually speak specifically about self-regulation. So can you talk about how that pertains to grit and how people can build their self-regulation? Yeah, you have to learn to delay gratification. It's as simple as that. You can't just have things when you want them. You have to learn that working towards things that are particularly valuable are the things that we have the most pride in. There was research even showing that you know, they took away the cake mix that only made you add water because they found people had no pride in the cakes they made. So they start adding in the egg, the, the oil. The, we take pride in the hard things that we do. And self-regulation is at the heart of this. When you look at Roy Baumeister's work and other researchers, they really lament the fact that this was the work ethic that the United States was founded on. And it's really gone missing. So you have basically, just down to this, you have to learn self-regulation. And since we're talking about sport for a moment, I think for many women, self-regulation has been imposed by male coaches. I'm thinking about the track issues with Alberto Salazar at the Nike training facility. The tons of male coaches who have been banned from swimming, the safe sport movement, who all would impose dietary restrictions and weight limits on women. It has to be something that comes from you. You have to self-regulate by yourself and you can learn it through trial and error. I heard you say it has to come from you. So does that mean it has to be intrinsically motivated? Yes, that's how I overcame bulimia. Every hard thing I've ever done was because it mattered so much to me that I was willing to do hard things and deny myself like, oh, I'll go check my text messages or I'll just go do this. I'll get away from my work. I'm writing my ninth book right now. There are a lot of things I'd like to do, but the self-regulation demands that I have a page count every single day. So it has to be intrinsically motivated. If it's not something you really care about, there's no reason to endure that kind of pain. It's going to be hard to dig deep in the dark night of the soul. Simple isn't always easy, though. And you're a very disciplined person. It sounds like I know that I'm a very disciplined person. What if you're not very disciplined and it's not just as simple as I'm just going to delay gratification? Hang around people who have grit. I think this is one of the things that Angela found with her grit research is if you were a West Point cadet with slightly lower grit scores, they would room you with a, a cadet who had a higher grit score. This kind of behavior is contagious. And what you find is it's one small decision after another, one small behavior change after another. We're not talking about a complete character overhaul. We're talking about making small decisions that actually add up to make you a little bit more persistent. So that's, you know, hang around with people who have it and the contagion and the normalcy of being that person will take over. Yeah. I'm just thinking about comments people have made when they've come to visit me. (laughs) Just whenever you say that. Like what? Wow, it feels like I live in a health retreat when I live here <laughs> or when oh, I'm visiting you. I'd love to visit you. That would be fun for me. Yeah, you're you're more than welcome to come up, you and your husband, and I can take a mountain biking. <laughs> oh, okay. I'm all in. That's a yes. Okay, next. <laughs> so we have three minutes left, and this is something personally I wanted to ask you, and I know that something people will be interested in. In that Locke and Latham paper, they, here's a, a direct quote that I has stuck with me since reading that paper. When people set high goals with high motivation and effort, they experience lower satisfaction. We talked about this a little bit, but you also said people that wake up happy in the morning are ones that have high goals. It seems that there's this paradox here between satisfaction and high goals. So how do you help your clients wrestle with that? 
They have to understand that in the process of doing hard things, there's going to be discomfort. There's going to be frustration. They may not get what they want immediately at the end of the day. You know, they may not have gotten a trophy, but they will have the self-satisfaction, look at self-determination theory of knowing that they were autonomous and they did something hard because it mattered to them. I always think about learning to drive a stick shift car when I think about that quote from Locke and Latham, because you do not learn how to drive a stick shift car in one lesson or two lessons. It's harder. You will be frustrated. You might cry. You might cry. But at the end of the day, the research is very clear that authentic self-esteem is built only, only through going out of your comfort zone and doing hard things. And at the end of the day, most people don't know this, but you scan your day for what you did that was hard, not easy, hard. And you're doing this, not even knowing you're doing it. And how do you build authentic self-esteem? You experience frustration and sadness and depression or whatever, but you rally because you know you're on your way. I can't believe we're already out of time and we covered so much. So thank you for coming on the show. Where can people find your work, your books, your coaching? My name, Caroline Miller, carolinemiller.com. And, you know, this is a great interview. You really focus on what matters and this is what people need to do. It's exactly what you're role modeling here. Find something you're passionate about and drill right down to how do you get this thing and teach other people how to do it. So you're one of those people, I think, who is giving away something that you'd like to keep and the world is better for it. Well, thanks so much. That is greatly appreciated. I hope you enjoyed that episode with Caroline Miller. I certainly did. And I learned a lot from her even after spending years studying goal setting on my own. So um, I hope whenever you're setting new goals, you take these things into consideration. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. I can't believe we will hit seven years in May. That is unbelievable. And I couldn't have done it without you and your encouragement. And to those of you who are supporting my work on Patreon and PayPal, you can find the link for that at sandyalooney.com slash podcasts. You can also find old podcast episodes there, which you can use a drop-down menu to search by topic because you can imagine after almost seven years of podcasts, that is a lot of episodes. So you can pick based on your interests and dig in a little bit deeper. I also have transcripts. Thank you to my amazing team at Palm Tree Pod and all of the other amazing things that they do to make this show professional and sound amazing. So you can go back and skim through if there's something that piqued your interest. As always, friends, I am on this journey with you of personal growth, adventure, and our mission to be better every day. And I'll see you right back here next week.